0: Hey everybody, Brian McClanehan here. I've been talking about Learn True, True, History.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great Program, But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So, two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Three, two, one, zero. through Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 93. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, I just want to remind you of a few things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. Share it with your friends and enemies alike, particularly your enemies. You've got to get them converted over. Uh, tell those people where it's at and what they should be listening to. Also, you can like me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, And you can like my YouTube page. And, of course, every one of those is Brian with an O. Uh, if you do like this podcast and you want to support the program, you can do so at www.brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You go on there, you click the little button, you can send me a donation of a penny or whatever you see fit to help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. If you do like it twice a week, help me keep that going. You've got 93 action packed, fantastic episodes. If you just listen to this one for the first time, you got a lot to catch up on. That's, you know, hours and hours. Of Brian McClanahan show to go catch up on. Plus, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com, that's Brian with an O again, you can give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and a free audiobook read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders in American History. What a deal. And not only that, you can go to blamehamilton.com. You've heard about this, I'm sure. And I'm look, the time is ticking away on this, folks. Okay, September 18th is the release date. Here we are, middle of July, and you're thinking, I still got two months. That's true. You still got two months. But I'm going to tell you, on September 18th, the deal stops. And you're out nothing right now for going in there and pre-ordering a book. You can save all of your pennies. And don't let that price on Barnes and Noble or Amazon or whatever scare you. It's going to be lower than that when it comes out. In fact, they already lowered down the ebook price. It was like twenty-eight bucks at one point. Now it's down to ten. Okay, so you you can go out there. And you can pre-order this book, and I will give you if you do so and you send me an email to blamehamilton at gmail.com with a screenshot of your order. If you buy one book, I'll send you an ebook, the Jeffersonian Solution. If you buy two or more, pre order two or more, I'll send you not, not only that ebook, the Jeffersonian Solution, but I'll give you a six lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. You can't beat that. So don't sit there and wait till the last minute and think I'm gonna do this, then you'll forget. Do it now. Just go ahead and knock it out. Go there and make the purchase. You're not out any money until September. So you can save for, I mean, look, if it's only going to be about 20 bucks, you can save $10 a month for two months and you got the book. And that is going to be awesome. So go out there and get those things. Okay, all that said, to lead into what I'm going to talk about here today, and this actually has to do with both the Hamilton book and my last book, nine presidents who screwed up America, and my founding father's got to the Constitution, because this is an issue that I hear a lot. And it has to do with Lincoln sending in the troops, or at least calling up the militia in 1861. He called up 75,000 troops to put down the insurrection in the South. And so I get this a lot. Dr. McClanahan. Now, people will tell me all the time this was constitutional, because Lincoln was following the parameters of the Militia Act. And so, obviously, this is constitutional. I mean, how can it not be? He's following the Militia Act. And when you go back and look at it, well, you read the Militia Act, and you think, okay, well, it looks like maybe they have a point. And then when you get into the Washington administration, this is when it was first used, the Militia Act of 1792. And I'm going to go over this a little bit for you. The Militia Act of 1792 was the basis for the invasion of, of western Pennsylvania by the United States military in 1794 during the quote-unquote risky rebellion. Okay, So, first question is, is the Militia Act constitutional? Second question, where the heck does this thing come from? And was Lincoln actually following the letter of the law? And in fact, the Militia Act was revised in 1795. So I'm going to get into the politics of this. And I'm going to talk about these things. And we're I'm, I'm going to kind of get this out in the open and, and talk about these particular ideas. So first and foremost, let's talk about this militia act. So you look at the Constitution, and one of my uh, somebody tweeted me this, and this is why I thought it was pretty important to talk about this. Now you know, he said I'm confused. I'm confused. You look at uh, you look at for example Article Four, and it says that in order for the militia to be called into actual service of the United States or for it to be called out in cases of rebellion or insurrection, the public safety may require it. They have to have, this is in the Constitution now, they have to have the authorization, the authorization from the legislature of the said state or the governor of said state if the legislature is not cannot be convened. Now, that is in the Constitution. It's in Article 4. Also, in Article 1, Section 8, The Congress is given the authority to regulate the militia, to arm, equip, and discipline the militia. And so the Militia Act had that part of it as well. But it's that part where it authorizes the general government to call up the militia and how it allows them to do so. That is the question here that we need to get out in the open. Are the people that are saying, well, Lincoln was perfectly justified in this, he he was following the letter of law, are they correct or are they incorrect? And what about this Militia Act? Should it even have been signed into law in the first place? So when you look at this Militia Act, first of all, for, let's, let's read it. What does the Militia Act actually say? Section 1. Being enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of, of America and Congress assembled, that whenever the United States shall be invaded, or be in imminent danger of invasion from any foreign nation or an Eden tribe, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States to call forth such number of the militia of the states, or state or states most convenient to the place of danger or scene of action as he may judge necessary to repel such invasion and to issue his orders for that purpose to such officer, or officers of the militia as he shall think proper, etc., etc. And in the case of an insurrection in any state against the government thereof, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States on application of the legislature of such state or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, to call for such number of militia of any other state or states, as may be applied for, or as he may judge sufficient to suppress such insurrection. So that's a part that we need to get into, first of all. In the case of an insurrection any state, against the government thereof, so if the government of that state, if there is an insurrection against the government, then the president has to actually have... Or the Congress, in this case. See, one of the things, the problem with this is the Congress is punning the ability to the president. But they're giving... So you could you could argue this is whether the Congress can even do that. But if they could, the president still has to have the authority from the legislature of the state or the governor of the state if the legislature cannot be convened. So that's that's part of this. Section 2. And be it further enacted that whenever the laws of the United States shall be opposed or the execution thereof obstructed in any state... By combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings or by the powers vested in the marshals by this act, the same being notified to the President of the United States by an associate justice or the district judge, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States to call forth a militia of such state to suppress such combinations and to cause the laws to be duly executed. And the militia of a state, where such combinations may happen, shall refuse... Or be insufficient to suppress the same it shall be lawful for the president the legislature of the United States be not in session to call forth and employ such numbers of the militia of any other state or states most convenient thereto, etc., etc. So that section is often, well, here you go. Here's where Lincoln had the authority. Because you had a situation where you had the federal laws obstructed in the South. And so, therefore, the president can call forth a militia to put down the insurrection, and he can, first he has to look at the militias of those states, and then he can call forth the militias of other states, and voila, we've got Lincoln's constitutional then invasion of the southern states. So let's talk about this Militia Act. This was passed on the 2nd of May, 1792. Second Congress, first session. And there was some debate about this, about whether this should even, was even wise to do. We think that somehow, well, this was unanimous. It really wasn't. It was a very close, very close vote to have this thing even be enacted. And there were a number of people who said, I am completely against this thing for a variety of reasons, most importantly, because they feared how this thing would be abused by the general government. And lo and behold, two years after it's passed, it is abused by the general government. So I'll get into that with Washington here in a second, but there were people in the, in that second Congress who said, wait a second here, I'm not so certain this is a good idea to give the president this much authority. So in that debate about this particular bill, John Mercer of Maryland opposed it, and he said this. He opposed the section empowering the president of the United States to call out the militia. He considered the subject too important to receive a hasty decision, and as the section is so near its close and no immediate necessary exists to make the provision, he hoped it would be postponed to the next session. Uh, John Steele of North Carolina objected to the section. He considered it as having an inauspicious aspect. That was an insult to the uh, majesty of the people to hold out the idea that it may be necessary to execute the laws at the point of the bayonet. He said he had no doubt that there were in every state a sufficient number of persons well-informed and attached to government to quell any insurrection and to restore a good order. Hugh Williamson of North Carolina objected to it. Uh, Samuel Livermore of New Hampshire opposed it. Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts said it was a bad idea. And it was still a, it was a close vote. So here we have the militia. Even though it, the Militia Act, it passed. But it had a couple of things that were important. Some, some arguments that I make. In the uh, book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I also bring this up in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, but I get into more detail here. First of all, the Supreme Court Chief Justice of the time, John Jay, argued that sending the militia into Pennsylvania was unconstitutional. He said so in a meeting with the entire Washington cabinet, including Washington himself and, of course, Alexander Hamilton. He said this was unconstitutional. The governor of Pennsylvania said It was unconstitutional. Thomas Mifflin was his name. He, of course, was at the uh, Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention. Mifflin well understood the Constitution, and he said, look, this is unconstitutional. You can't march the militia into Pennsylvania to put down this insurrection when we can take care of it. We, We can now of course Hamilton's looking at it and he's 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 just salivating here. Well, here it gives the authority for the general government to march in the militia of that state or several states, if we want to, to put down this insurrection against the federal, against federal law, federal taxes that weren't even being collected anyways. And Washington was very suspicious. He said, "Wait a second here, Hamilton." If we do this, it's going to prove all these arguments against it, that what we really want to do is use the bayonet to coerce the states. And I'm not so certain I want to do that. Well, eventually, Washington capitulated to Hamilton, and Hamilton got his way. Now, the question is, should the Militia Act even have been assigned into law? It's very clear in Article 4 that in order for any of these things to happen, you have to have the application of the governor or the state legislature, state legislature first, or the governor that adding this separate provision onto the end, Section 2, was a violation of the Constitution. Now, the Supreme Court didn't find it that way. The Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the Militia Act. And after the Whiskey Rebellion, the Congress got back to work, and they removed that qualification where the president actually had to have a uh, certification from a Supreme Court justice or district judge saying, well, we, we can't we can't stop this this insurrection that was actually put in as to to put a brake on the president from abusing his power in that particular case but they took that out in 1795 why because we're in the days right after the whiskey rebellion and that was seen as a problem washington had to get james wilson of pennsylvania the supreme court chief justice was not going to allow it to happen but james wilson of pennsylvania who didn't like these western farmers anyways they didn't like him either he says yeah Send in the army. I mean, there's a insurrection too powerful, a combination too powerful to suppress, and all these kind of things. So go ahead and do that. Get in there, take out those fools in western Pennsylvania. But they removed that in 1795. So uh, the Militia Act was changed in 1795 to allow for greater executive control of that particular element of Putting down a quote unquote insurrection. That's important to understand. Okay. So we move forward. Washington sets the precedent. Now we get into the issue of the tariff in the 1830s, and you've got the Congress passing the force bill, which would have authorized the president to go out, President Jackson to go out and use the army to coerce the state of South Carolina to collect the revenue. The state of South Carolina says this is unconstitutional. They nullify it. Of course, I just talked about this in the last episode of the Brian McLeanahan Show. They nullify it. They say, no, it's unconstitutional. You can't do that. Could they? Uh, this gets into the question of can the federal government enforce its own laws with the bayonet? Can they force people to pay taxes with the bayonet? And that comes down to sovereignty. So in this particular way, you have to look at, well, can the general government And can it enforce its own tax legislation? You'd have to say, yes, they can. They can enforce their own tax legislation. So uh, I, I think that when you get into the nuts and bolts about it, though, this law, the people of South Carolina said the law was unconstitutional. And so therefore, you're not supposed to be able to enforce an unconstitutional law. That comes down, this is again, the issue of consent, which I just talked about in the last podcast. So if the law is unconstitutional, then the general government cannot enforce an unconstitutional law. That would be illegal. And South Carolina was saying that law is unconstitutional or immoral, whatever the case may be. But they're saying it's unconstitutional, illegal, and unjust was the language they actually used. So the president, though, is still acting as essentially a king here. And can the Congress legally do that? Can the Congress give the president authority that's not delegated in Article II of the Constitution? Well, the president can actually... Uh, lead the militia when they're actual service of the United States. I mean, it says that in Article 2. So if the Congress puts the militia into into action, but they're saying the President puts the militia into action. So can the Congress, I would say no, the Congress can't punt a responsibility, a constitutional responsibility to the, to the President of the United States that they themselves have. And of course, you have to have an application from the legislature or the governor of that state to say that there's an actual insurrection taking place and that the The proper, uh, you know, legal procedures, meaning the courts or the marshals can't put this thing down. So that brings us to 1861 and Abraham Lincoln. So let's look at this particular case, because now we have a situation where you've got Fort Sumter fired upon. You've got Fort Pickens also captured by the federal troops in Florida, which uh, was another act of aggression that, that the South saw. Of course, no one really saw that nobody paid much attention to that one. They pay more attention to Sumter. But we've got these two separate incidents and can Lincoln then constitutionally call up the militia to put down this quote unquote rebellion. So was the South in a state of rebellion? First of all, there was no rebellion against the state governments in the South. In fact, the South, through convention, through properly elected conventions, voted in crushing majorities, in some cases unanimously. In the case of South Carolina, to leave the Union. So there was no insurrection against the state government. So Lincoln couldn't have gone to that one and said, "You know, uh, I've got um, to, uh, I- I've got an insurrection here. We got to go to Article Four to ensure that I can send in the militia." Well, obviously, the people of those states would say there's no insurrection. We are the government. And I think that's the case. That's something that we would have to think about in this particular case. So what about the second part? And this is where people say, yeah, I got you. Because Section 2 says... That if the laws of the United States shall be opposed or the execution thereof obstructed in any state by combinations too powerful to be suppressed, etc., etc., then the president can send in the militia. And the militia of other states, the president can send those in too. Now the question is, were the laws of the United States opposed or the execution thereof obstructed? What laws are we talking about here? Well, obviously we're getting into the tariff because that would be the revenue situation. The laws, Lincoln would say, are obstructed or opposed in the state of South Carolina. But the state of South Carolina is no longer in the Union. The state of South Carolina, just like the people of the states did in 1776, declared their independence from from the United States. The people of the states in 1776 declared their independence from Great Britain. And we had 13 separate peace treaties in 1783 in the Treaty of Paris. So Section 2 doesn't even apply. In order for Lincoln to send in the militia, he would have to have a declaration of war against the South. But, of course, this is now semantics. Lincoln is saying, no, these states are in rebellion. They're still in the Union. The South is saying, no, we're out of the Union. So your laws don't apply to us anymore. We've got a fort out there that's in our territorial waters, and you're trying to provision that fort. Even though we've tried to buy it, even though we've said we want to do this peacefully, you're trying to send in the army, and so we've got to do something about this. So does this second section even apply to the situation in 1861? I would say, almost conclusively, no, it doesn't. The southern states, through conventions, had withdrawn from the Union. So in order for Lincoln to call up the army and send the army into uh, into South Carolina or any other southern state, he would have had to have had a declaration of war, something he did not have. And something was very clear he wasn't going to get. Because through a declaration of war, you'd recognize that secession is actually not just de facto taken place, but de jure taken place. And that was something that Lincoln could not do. Now, other southern states said, you know what, we're not going to give you our militia. And this is why they started resisting. Because they said, this is a violation of the Constitution. It's a violation of Article 4. And I think you can make a very solid case, and I have tried to make this case, that Article 4 is supreme in this particular way, because that was that's the language of the Constitution. Now, I know people will say, well, yeah, but you got the Necessary and Proper Clause. The Congress can pass such legislation that they deem necessary and proper to put the foregoing powers into effect. They have to organize, arm, and discipline the militia. Okay, I understand that. What does that have to do? And, of course, it does say in Article 1, Section 8 that the Congress can... To provide for calling forth a militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. To execute the laws of the reunion, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. But this is a congressional power again. The Congress is the one who can call forth a militia. Not the President of the United States, but the Congress. So they've unconstitutionally punted this responsibility to the President of the United States. This should be something for Congress to do. I have argued over and over again, and actually some people have made this point, that the problem in America is not really the executive branch. It's always been the Congress, either punting their responsibility to the courts, punting their responsibility to the executive branch, or just punting their responsibility entirely to no one. They just don't do it. The problem has really been the Congress, and I think you can make a whole book how the Congress screwed up America. And Maybe that will be the next one, you know, how... <laughs> I've got uh, the presidents, I've got Hamilton, now maybe I need to go to the Congress. And of course, in the Hamilton book, I bring up three judges, the, f- the federal court system. So maybe I need to go to the Congress and how the Congress screwed up America and pick out some of the more uh, dangerous individuals in the Congress over time and explain how they've done some of these things. But uh, I think it's very clear that the entire premise of the Militia Act is unconstitutional. The part where they, where they organize and arm the militia, that's not unconstitutional. And they, do, they can provide... For, if the laws of the Union are, are not uh, enforced, they can provide in some way to enforce the laws of the Union. Okay, the laws that are supreme. But if there's a question as to whether this law is constitutional, well, that becomes an entirely other point. And in this particular case in 1861, this was not really enforcing the laws of the Union. This was saying that a foreign entity now, the Confederate States of America, had to, in, had to be suppressed to collect revenue. Because that's, what it, what it, that's the only laws they were looking to enforce at that point. is revenue collection. They wanted the tariffs. So when people say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the wars, there's no economic modification here whatsoever. Simply not true. I think the important thing about that, too, and I'll make a point about this. We should not say, well, you know, the reason that the North wanted to, uh, the economic motivation was the South paid 80% of the federal tariff. And, of course... Uh, there's no evidence to this, that they paid 80%. Uh, that's, that's, then, well, the South paid the majority of the money. Well, I mean, you have to measure that somehow. And so you, you've opened yourself up to the critics to come out, and they've done it, where they say, well, that's just a pun. Look at this. These people are fools. The real problem was it was not the amount of money the South was paying in the tariff that, that scared Lincoln and other northern uh, mercantile interests. It was the fact that the South, by March, by April of 1861, had already implemented a policy of essentially free trade. Their tariff was half of the northern tariff. Half. And so who are you going to trade with? If I'm Great Britain, or I'm France, or I'm Spain, or I'm the Dutch, whoever it is, who am I going to trade with? Am I going to go trade with the north? When they don't really have much anyways, and the cotton crop was the largest export for the United States... Well am I going to go trade with the South where the duties are much lower and I can make more money? What am I going to do? I'm not paying any of these duties. So, of course, you're going to trade with the South. So that was really the economic motivation. It wasn't about, you know, Lincoln, who, who, who's going to pay the taxes in the United States now? The North is paying a lot of taxes. They had people paying taxes. The problem was that that tax revenue would start drying up if more and more trade was focused on, say, Savannah or Charleston or some other major trading hub, Mississippi, New Orleans. Was focused on the South, that was the economic key. So if we're talking about enforcing laws. I mean, this is what we're this is what we're looking at here: tariffs. But we're talking about a separate entity now. The same claim that the United States made in 1776. Now the British said, No, you can't, you can't do that, and they fought to try to keep the British North American colonies within the empire. And of course, the Union does the exact same thing, and they win. The Union wins, and so they get to say, Well, here it is. We're following the Militia Act of 1795. I don't even need the authorization of a Supreme Court justice. I've got a situation where the laws are not are being opposed in the South, and so I have to call up the militia, 75,000 volunteers, to march into the South to put down an insurrection uh, and a combination too powerful to suppress. Because the the militia of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, et cetera, et cetera, they're not going to come forth. So I've got to go in and use somebody else's militia to do it. And, of course, other states said, you're not marching through our state, and so they seceded as well. That was the key. I mean, there were several states that said, you can't do this, it's unconstitutional. So my position is is pretty simple. In 1794, and in in 1861, and in 1832, if you want to talk about the force bill, in all these cases, you had opposition to a law because it was said it was unconstitutional. Or you had a situation where you had independence declared and therefore the laws wouldn't apply anyway. So we're getting back to this idea of nullification and the center saying you're going to pay it, you're going to do it, whatever the case may be. And we've got the militia law to ensure, the Militia Act to ensure that we can send in the troops. However, in all of these cases, Article 4 was violated. In all of these cases, Article 4 was violated. They would need to have authorization from the legislature or the governor of those particular states, if there was an insurrection against the state. Now you can say, well, in 1861, this was, you know, an insurrection against collecting the revenue in the South. But these states were separate countries by that point, and so now you're having to deal with a situation where you would have to have a, de- a declaration of war to ensure these states could collect the could collect the revenue. They were separate countries. And I think if you're a consistently American, if you believe in self-determination, no matter what the cause, I mean, we can argue about causes, we can argue about whether the cause of the South, whatever it was. But this was the self-determination of the people of the South, the voting population of the South, through convention, to leave the Union. And I think we need to be very consistent in suggesting that Lincoln was violating the Constitution here. I think there's no doubt about it. Uh, Article 1, Section 8, you can bring up, I read it to you. You can say, well, there it is. But the Congress, that's a power of Congress. If you look at Article 1, it says, the powers of Congress herein granted, or the powers, the legislative power of the United States herein granted, shall be vested in the Congress of the United States, and the powers are granted in Article 1, Section 8 to the Congress, not to the President of the United States. They're granted to the Congress. Who's doing the granting? The states. The people of the states? The states. So this would be my answer to this. In terms of legal authority, in terms of whether the law was even constitutional, I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think that uh, Lincoln had a legal leg to stand on in calling up the militia. I think he could have said, well, we're going to go to war with the South because they fired on a fort that we claim. But in order to do so, he would have had to recognize that secession took place, and no president's going to do that. So we run into that conundrum of rebellion versus legal separation. But looking at it, look, going back to 1792 even in and of itself, there were many voices against the Militia Act at that time. They said this was a dangerous thing to have, a dangerous thing to pass. It was not going to be a good situation for the United States should we pass a Militia Act that gives the president this much power. It was expanded by the Federalists in 1795. You've got to remember too, 1792, the Federalists the Nationalists controlled the Congress. The Nationalists controlled the Congress in 1795, and they would, ensure, they would ensure they were going to put their stamp on the government at that point, a strong central authority. And you did have people saying, I don't understand what the problem is here. We believe in strong central authority, and this is something we got to do. So, But it was north and south. There were voices against this north and south, not just in the south. There were Southerners for it. There were Southerners against it. And it did pass, but not by a crushing majority, Not as much as people would think. So there you have it. That's my position on the Militia Act. That's where I say it's unconstitutional. This is what I get into in that chapter on the rebellion and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and also how I talk about it in nine presidents who screwed up America. And I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you'll still read the book and get into a little more detail, nuts and bolts. I'll see you next time on the Brian McLean show.